Just papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Welcome to The Media Project, an inside look at media coverage of current events. I'm Judy Patrick, former editor of the Daily Gazette and vice president now for editorial development for the New York Press Association, filling in for our usual host, Rex Smith, former editor of the Albany Times Union. Joining us this week is WAMC's CEO, commentator, columnist, publisher, etc., Alan Chartog. How are you doing, Alan? Well, oh, come on. I'm just fine. Very good. I'm feeling really, really good. Oh, wonderful. That is a change indeed. <laughs> Former editor, investigative journalist, and RPI professor Rosemary Armeo is also with us. Thanks for having me. And Mike Spain, former associate editor of the Albany Times Union. Thanks for being with us. Happy to be here, Judy. Thanks. Oh, wonderful. Let's start with the survey that the Associated Press and the American Press Institute has put out about young people following the news and what they found that people are indeed following the news, but they're not doing so with much joy. And apparently that is a change over the years. A survey of people aged 16 to 40 find that millennials and Generation Z follow the news, but they aren't happy with what they're seeing. But the study found that 32% say they enjoy following the news, down sharply from 53% in a similar study seven years ago. So what's happening and why is this important or is this not important? Alan? Well, what our young people who will eventually be our older people are thinking is very important. And if they are not following the news carefully, that means we're going to have a rather ignorant population. Now, I'll be honest with you, I think that that has existed for quite a while now. In other words, I think young people have not cared that much about the news, but they, if questioned, they'll say, yes, I do. But in fact, it doesn't always turn out that way. With all due respect to the researchers, I think this is a really stupid study. This is not cleaning up clutter in your house. It's reading news. Why should you feel joy? What are you going to feel joy over? The decline of democracy, flooding and climate disasters worldwide. There should be no joy in reading the news if you're really reading it, which I, like Alan, also doubt. The young people I come into contact with, my students consistently do not read or in any other way consume news. And that to me is distressing. So I'd like to believe that at least that part of the study is good news and brings me joy. But again, I just have doubt about the whole thing. I think it has a lot to do with how you define the news. If you're talking about, you know, the people page that a lot of newspapers run or celebrity news or entertainment news or news about parts of the culture that you are particularly interested in, rock music, fashion, sports, you know, it probably hasn't changed. But I agree, Rosemary, the the news lately seems to be more grim than it has been in the past. And that just may be a perception we have. But if it is painful to read and it causes you stress to read it, a natural response to that would be to do less of it. And, Alan, you're right. I mean, it's going to have some kind of effect going forward if people don't take ownership and participate in their society 
and they avoid anything that's distasteful to them, it's going to cut down on people's engagement, and that's not good. I wonder what 10 or 15 years ago, whatever the reference point in the past was, was in the news that brought people joy. News has never been joyful. That's not the nature of news. You wouldn't, you wouldn't exactly say that World War II or World War I were joyful. Exactly, <laughs> if they went back that far. They, they say 10 years ago. What was happening 10 years ago that would bring you joy of reading? Yeah. Barack Obama's ascendancy, maybe. It, it could have been that 10 years ago there was far less news for them to consume, or news I put in air quotes, because social media has bombarded them with a lot of content. Whether or not we consider it news, maybe they consider it news. I Probably mm-hmm. if we went out on the street and asked people to define news, they probably wouldn't be able to. For people in the newspaper industry, it's always been important to cultivate that younger audience because we knew that they were going to grow up and eventually subscribe to newspapers. And so that's why we always tried to cater to this younger audience. And it it has always been a slog. And I was surprised that 50-some percentage of people, of young people, enjoyed the news seven years ago. That That seemed high. And, of course, we don't really know who's telling the truth and who's lying. You know, when you say to somebody, do you enjoy the news, what are you going to do? Say, no, I hate the news and I don't listen to it and I reject it. I think there's an awful lot of not telling the truth. Yeah. Going back to what you were saying, Judy, I think there always has been a belief that younger people, they're single often, they don't have children, and they their life is busy enough socially with their work etc. They're paying attention less to what's going on in their local community. Then they might settle down, they might get married, have children, buy a house, have to pay property taxes, have to worry about local schools, Mm. uh, have to worry about water and pollution and the cost of living a whole lot more. And then suddenly they begin to pay more attention and they get more involved. And and that, that had been a trend. But this survey, and I think we can all admit and talk about how surveys can be skewed, but this particular survey kind of fights that notion that even as they get older, they're turning away from the news, which would be a very disappointing trend. You know, I have so much trouble believing any of this stuff. If we were to stand in front of the legislative office building in downtown Albany and ask, who's the governor of New York? I think you'd be pretty distressed as the fact that people don't know, have no idea. And if you asked who the lieutenant governor of New York is, forget it, Jack. Right, but if you asked them who won the Grammy for Best Pop Single, they would know and they would think that would be news. This is the conundrum of this poll. Which brings us a good transition to this next issue, which is last week, two media polls announced results that seemed almost willful efforts to portray the public as extremists. This is according to the Fair and Accuracy and Reporting Project. The Economist announced that most Americans see the U.S.-Mexican border situation as a crisis, with 59% of Americans accepting that characterization, with just 22% who do not. The same day, NPR reported that a majority of Americans see an invasion at the southern border. But both of these polls reinforced the larger narrative being promoted by Fox News and Republicans that an increased number of migrants being stopped at the border represents a serious threat to the U.S. The problem, however, is with the polling questions. And the questions in both of these polls were unbalanced. They didn't give people enough leeway to offer a valid opinion. And as a result, the results were skewed. These kind of unbalanced questions make me wonder about the value of polling in general. I mean, we use them a lot. But what value do they bring to our understanding of the world, and why do news media organizations love them so much? 
Well, part of it is that the news organizations have to decide what red meat they want to give to their people. In other words, what is it we want to give out in order to get people to listen to us, to read us, to take advantage of what we have to offer? So I think the polling becomes very important in terms of the dissemination of news. Legitimately, uh, news organizations team up with universities, organizations that do public opinion surveys to try to get the news beyond the news. And certainly, going into an election, you want to have a sense of what the issues are, and you want to have a sense of maybe the candidates that are out there in front and what the public thinks of the particular candidates to generate the conversation that is important to the community when they're about to elect new people or vote on a particular referendum. So it's a legitimate attempt, whether there's any value in it, whether the surveys are accurate. I think we all learned on Election Day in 2016 that surveys can be extremely inaccurate. And as Judy, you were pointing out, I mean, a lot has to do with how the questions are posed. I think since 2016, journalists have been as dependent as polls as ever. They did not learn the lesson, and they don't ask the questions that they ought to, like what was the sample size, what's the percentage of error, who did the poll, that affects it, and how are the questions worded. In this case, unbalanced means, in this case, is the situation on the border a crisis? Is there a situation on the border? What situation? I don't think there's a situation on the border, but that's not an option that you're given. And you get these polls now, alleged polls that come over the telephone. I love them. I get them from my mother, who is a registered Republican. I am not. And they'll say, do you think that the press has hammered Donald Trump mercilessly and unfairly? And my answer is no, I don't think they've gone after him hard enough. And, and, and that's it. And the weaknesses in polls have been exposed since 2016, including that on the state level, for example, in many states, they're completely inaccurate. They're flying blind. And we don't know that. We report it as if the poll shows, you know. And then there is the question of what exactly does it matter what people think. People in America seem to think, depending on how the questions are asked, that abortion, total bans are a bad idea, that unfettered guns with no regulation or allowances for safety, that those are a bad idea. We don't get our way. Our representatives are not paying attention to the polls. I think polls are lazy reporting. You get a nice report that says, wow, people are worried about the border, and that's your story, rather than going out and seeing what the situation really is and reporting from the border that costs money and the salaries of expensive reporters. We don't do that. And yet, Rosemary, I think the importance is that people care enough to be politically active based on what their perception is, right? So that we can say, well, the polls aren't accurate. They don't measure what they should. And yet people lose or win offices based on what people are thinking. Right. That raises the question, what's the purpose of the poll? Is the end to give the politicians some idea of where their vote should go? I agree with Rosemary. There are some basics in journalism where we're supposed to tell people what the question was, what the survey size, what the margin of error is, and explain what a margin of error is because nobody really knows this. Fundamentally, much of this is lazy journalism. It's an easy story. It's a way of bringing up an issue without really offering the real context. Well, an awful lot of polling is done that we don't hear about. A lot of private polling is done. Companies do polling about products, about you know where they're gonna aim their advertising and which demographic is the most likely to be receptive to this kind of advertising. 
Politicians do polls on their own that are probably a lot more revealing, and they're probably not tilted the way Rosemary described the one that comes to her mother, you know, asking a loaded question for which the answer is expected, and it would produce the obvious results for somebody wanting to manipulate and game, you know, game polling. But I think there's a lot of polling, and it is a science, and it is an art, And it is inaccurate, and it can change overnight, but it can be very useful in finding out what's really going on if it's done, and then reporting comes off of it. And you go out and interview people about why this is an issue, why this is important, and why this isn't important, and what's the trend that it is suggesting, and report about that. It can be done. It can be very useful. Just to report the results of a poll, I agree, you know, it's very thin and it doesn't mean a whole lot. What you're describing, Mike, is the journalism of the 80s and 90s when there were well-financed newsrooms with uh, experienced reporters who would actually use polls as a reporting tool. What we have now, though, is this kind of crap where you report the result and it's lazy and it's easy. We also see it in anything Donald Trump tweets. No, he truths. He truths. He truths. <laughs> Whatever he puts out on social media becomes a story. It's not. And in fact, most people in the United States, citizens, are not on Twitter or Truth Social. No, no, most are not on Truth most Social, that's for sure. But journalists are. And that's what we're reporting, because why? It's easy. You don't have to be an experienced journalist who knows how to find sources and dig out information. You can just do surface. But how reporting. white do you want your toothpaste? Yeah, I mean, right, exactly. In other words, there have always been reasons that people poll. Some of them have been toothpaste questions. Mm-hmm. Some of them have been if we Republicans or Democrats put up a particular candidate, how well will they do? And that's why these polls become very important in the way we do business. But it is. It's easy reporting when somebody else puts out a poll and you and the news media who don't have the resources mm. that you had in the 1980s and the 1990s when it was an entirely different business model for local media and you had the whereabouts to finance your own poll and work with legitimate pollsters and work on legitimate ways to ask questions that don't skew it a particular way that are not intended to produce a particular result. And I'm afraid that that does happen these days. And you went out and then you did the reporting. So it is very much, as you say, Rosemary, an issue of having the proper resources to fully report out what the polls might indicate. Well, all three of you have been editors of papers. My question to you is, have you ever relied on polls personally? Do you find that they're helpful to you in making assignments to reporters? We commissioned a poll at one point when I worked at the Daily Gazette for a, a mayoral race, and it you know, basically confirmed what we expected. What um, you knew. What we knew was going to happen. And I think what we were hoping is it was we reveal something we didn't know, some story that we weren't covering or some part of the populace that was interested in this campaign that we had missed. So in that respect, I didn't find it very illuminating at all. The other problem I found with them is they validate preconceived notions. We've seen this with inflation. People are getting polled about inflation all the time. And early on, I think the questions about inflation or the stories about inflation just accelerated people's polls 
whole response that, yes, inflation is a huge problem. Well, there's another trend, though, that especially broadcast media uses, but I think all print and broadcast rely on it much too much, is they'll send a reporter out and a camera, and they'll just stop somebody. And, 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 MOS. and what do you think? You know, they'll be at a gas pump. What do you think of $4.95 gasoline a couple oh, of months ago? And they'll say, oh, this is terrible. Right. And then they'll, and, and that will have an anecdotal coloring of how people perceive things. And, the, the, and it raises anxiety, and suddenly everybody is Worried. That's a really good point. You know, I'm thinking from the question, Alan, that the most useful polling I ever saw was in Bosnia, where the government did not want and did not collect information. And so the reporters paid for polling places to go out and ask questions to find out what people thought. It was radical that you would even care what people think because the government didn't provide it. That was extremely powerful. But they didn't stop the pollsters from asking the questions, right? I oh, mean, no, no. They no, were no. free to do it. Yeah, now, in, now, in Bosnia, the way you stop right. the press is ignore it and treat it as, you know, foolish. But people were struck by the idea that somebody's asking me what I think of. And so perhaps there's something that we could take from that here in America, which is to go out and talk to people about things that the government is ignoring. Climate change comes immediately to mind. The Trump administration downplayed it. There was the Scott administration in Florida banned even the expression climate change in Florida. And yet pollsters were going out and talking to people and finding widespread concern about it. Well, if it's, if it's done properly, uh, yeah. talking to a lot of people yep. and putting it in context, and sometimes you'll see a paragraph in one of these, maybe a New York Times story that says, in dozens of interviews with educators at 50, 60 colleges, we found that it's reporting. You know, you know, right? It's really reporting. Tool. It's not definitive in saying you know, 40% thought this and 60% thought this. But we did find that there is a great concern about the trend of adjunct professors versus faculty, full-time, you, full-time faculty, or w- whatever the issue might be, and then get into some of the pros and cons of that and talk to educators about it. And maybe there's a survey that was done and include that survey, but put it in context. But that was only 20 colleges, and it was 10 years ago. So that's legitimate reporting that uses polling as one of the anecdotes as it tries to illuminate whatever the issue is. I don't want to see polling go away. I just wish that there were fewer manipulations of it, and I don't really know how you do it, except that if a poll is manipulated, that a reporter would be astute enough or a media organization would be astute enough to either identify that it's a flawed poll if it's getting a lot of attention or ignore it. Right. Well, it wouldn't be a media project if we didn't talk about Fox News at some point. So here we go. (laughs) Two months ago, Australian media site Crikey called Murdoch an unindicted co-conspirator in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Fox Corp. CEO Lachlan Murdoch's lawyers have been battling Crikey ever since. So Crikey published an open letter, took out a full-page ad in the New York Times, challenging Murdoch to sue the company. So he did. So the legal battle highlights the obstacles Murdoch faces in his attempt to distance himself from the former president, Donald Trump. But at the same time, it raises really interesting issues about what the press can do in Australia and what they can't and what they can do in America, because Australian laws do not offer crikey the same protections in terms of what they can say without being sued for a libel. At the same time, here in America, we have two voting machine companies suing Fox News for the misrepresentations they made concerning the 2020 election. Fox News hosts recently were deposed in this $1.6 billion lawsuit by Dominion Voting. Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Janine Pirro, Lou Dobbs were among the people 
before had to sit before lawyers and give their depositions. So it's one media company in Australia, a big, powerful, worldwide media company coming down hard on a small little news site and probably having some success because the defamation laws in Australia are not as strong as they are in the U.S. In America, Fox is making the case that this is a First Amendment right. We can report on the stolen election because this is what the president says. So we've got these two battling stories. What do you think? I have been following this for a long time because I teach about media law. And I think that what we're seeing is Murdoch, the corporation, launching an attack on media worldwide. In Australia, there's no First Amendment. In the United States, that case would, if they brought it, I don't think any lawyer would take it. It would go nowhere because opinion about political activity is hugely protected under the First Amendment. There's just nowhere to go. Australia does not have the First Amendment, and he might indeed crush Crikey. Big kudos to Crikey for fighting for the freedom to say what they want to and what they think. Now, on the other hand, going against Dominion here, that case is really interesting. These kinds of cases seldom go to trial. They are usually settled beforehand. And Murdoch's corporation is not giving an inch. It's like they want it to go to trial in which case they are likely to lose. Yes, they are. They're likely to lose. They're likely to lose. They had reckless disregard for the truth. Every definition, it was libelous. Oh, my God. It was was a vendetta. (laughs) It just fits it. But if they lose, it ends up in the U.S. Supreme Court, which we we know know now is supremely Mm anti-press, six to three, super majority, very conservative. And several of those six justices have come out against the U.S. defamation law, which, again, like the First Amendment, offers huge protection since 1964 to the press. They can make mistakes. They have wide latitude in reporting about matters of public interest. I mean, it should be noted when people in the news media uh, show a reckless disregard for the truth. In other words, they ignore all the truth that's lying in front of them and, and report it differently. That is not protected. Or if they have a vendetta and it can be proven that they reported something to hurt somebody because they had a vendetta against them. And that's very difficult to prove. And it means it has to be even more than that with public figures. They can be held liable for that. But other than that, if they make it's a mistake, very difficult. if they make a mistake or if, if the reporting is wrong, they can... They, they do have protections under the First Amendment, under the 1964 ruling of Times versus Times Sullivan. Versus Sullivan. So yeah. here's my nightmare, that the Dominion case goes to trial, and if Murdoch loses, he appeals. It goes to the Supreme Absolutely. Court, and they get to rule not just on the case, but on Times versus Sullivan. And this is a Supreme Court that has already shown with Roe v. Wade and voting rights that they have no regard for precedent, and they can rewrite that and we lose a huge protection. It yeah. would be sympathetic because the liberals want Murdoch to lose. They, they don't want him to have exactly. the right. So they wouldn't look as bad as they do in Roe v. Wade. It would be a public relations dream for them. Yeah. Then Lachlan Murdoch is leading the charge against a small news site in Australia that he feels has wronged him and portrayed him in a negative light. But, you know, a different case there, and they're smart enough to know that. There's no First Amendment there. He may very well win that because that was defamatory, but it's not protected political speech and opinion in Australia the way it is here. So he doesn't care that his two cases are contradictory. Well, you call it defamatory. It defamed him, but it it reported the truth that he was the head of a company where many of the commentators were... That's not what they reported. They called him an unindicted co-conspirator. 
there's yeah. absolutely no litigation about anybody on January 6th. It's a lie. It's yeah. defamatory. It, but it's rhetorical. You know, it is right, rhetorical, right. Well, yes, and we have the right for that here. Australia is different, right. though. There's no First Amendment. Right. So for the Murdochs to be suing a news site in Australia for the very thing it's trying to use the law in the U.S. Correct. to escape accountability Correct. is hypocrisy. Yes. You know, you know, one of the side notes uh, on this issue is that one of the defenses for Fox against the Dominion voting lawsuit is the fact that it wasn't their people who were saying the defamatory things. It was their guests. And so when it comes to broadcast news, mm. what control have you over what your guests say? Or were they responsible because they booked the guests? That's not true. It was Lou Dobbs who has since been let go. It's Hannity. It's Carlson. They all said it themselves. It was not out of the mouths of guests. Well, it was also out of the mouth of guests. Well, they invited too. guests that would say what they themselves Right. And they, and they say it was in the course of conversation with the guests that they repeated them. Oh, so Dominion's uh, machines were run by a dictator in Venezuela who's now dead, huh? Is that right? <laughs> well, I, ad I admit, good point, Rosemary. From time to time, when somebody appears before our microphones and says something outrageous, I get worried. Now, most of the time, it doesn't matter. Nobody ever brings it up again. But I hear it, and I do believe your point is well taken. Well, you have to take some care about who you allow to sit in front of the microphone. You never know. You never know who's going to say what, right? Yeah, that's the danger zone. But but well, you always have the obligation to say, I'm sorry, but that's completely unsupported. Joy Reid is famous for that. I can't let that go. <laughs> yeah, that, that's not right. And that is the duty of the broadcaster. You're right. You don't know what anybody will say when you interview in print or broadcast, but you don't have to let it just stand. You, but, you can edit it out or question it. But there are a lot of cowardly broadcasters, and there are a lot of dumb broadcasters who just don't know what's being said and don't have the self-confidence to say, no, that's not right. Yeah, I mean, you, if you don't know for sure that the person being interviewed is factually wrong or that he's telling a, a falsehood, it's hard to call him on it. And I'm sure politicians have made comments everywhere that have not been completely true, and it's gotten on the air, and it's gotten in print. That's one thing. But to have such outrageous, disproven allegations against this voting company, Dominion, repeated, 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 is different, I think wasn't a slip of the tongue. It, right. was, it was a campaign that And it continues. wasn't put in context. <laughs> One more story before we go. In Canada, an anchor's ousting has sparked a debate on discrimination in the media. Last week, there was a very popular anchor named Lisa Laflamme from CDC News, and she was let go. People who have come to her support say she was let go because of her age, of her gender, and because of the fact that she let her hair go gray. Among the people who have supported her has been the fast food chain Wendy's, which allowed their little pigtail girl to go gray as well. So <laughs> broadcast media can be brutal. Is this just giving the audiences what they want, or should the broadcast companies and all of us try to appreciate the value of experience of a veteran woman journalist as much as they do a veteran male journalist. It's so interesting because sometimes I ask myself, now why has this particular person been chosen to give out the news? Is it because of looks? There's always an exception, but you don't usually find anybody who's older, besides on this program. <laughs> besides a male. <laughs> well, you don't find anybody who's older being hired in order to grab a bigger audience. The real evilness of this, I mean, TV has always been appearance conscious, and you can't be fat on television, male or female. You, you can't have, like, huge growths on your face, so it's not 
not as if this is a new thing. What's horrible is that it's so disparate between the genders. The same time that this anchor, Lisa Laflamme, was mm. let go because she has gray hair, male counterparts in the news anchors are being told, let your hair go gray. Do a gray rinse because it gives you gravitas and experience. You look like Walter Cronkite. That is discrimination. Well, on that sad note, that's all the time we have for this week. Thanks to Alan, Rosemary, and Mike. I'm Judy Patrick. Thanks for joining us. See you next week on The Media Project. Yeah.